Well, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you turned in from, or not necessarily from this morning, but turned in this morning. And so uh, take your Bibles and prepare to go back and forth. Some of the times we'll turn to the passage and maybe spend a little time there. Other times I may just mention a passage that you can jot down if you want to pursue some things further. And um, we never probably have as much time to cover all the questions that people would like, or at least give as much information as some would like on their question, uh, or one that's especially intriguing to them, but um, we'll do our best to at least touch on them and provide some thoughts from Scripture. All right, first question. We won't turn because this is uh, uh, mentioned in in multiple passages, but uh, in Hebrew Scripture, beginning, say, in Genesis 17, when God told Abraham that he was to make sure that the males in his line were circumcised, those that were not or did not obey that were to be cut off from their people. And then in Exodus, you have a number of commands, Exodus 12, 15, 12, 19, 30, 33, 31, 14, etc. This phrase occurs over and over again, that the one who disobeys this shall be cut off from his people. So what did that mean? <clears throat> well, what that meant was, that the person would be excluded from his people, excluded from the camp, if you're talking about in the early days of Israel, uh, separated from rights and privileges. And the, co- the commentaries I consulted indicated that this probably resulted in death. In other words, they were cut off. They were actually uh, sort of excommunicated, cut outside or cut off from their people, separation from the community, uh, which would probably result in death. And so it was a matter of obedience to be, still be a part of the, the privileged uh, people of God, of course, in the Old Testament here under the Old Covenant. And if you didn't, then you would be excluded from those privileges, those rights, those protections, etc. So I think that's what it means consistently, unless there's a, a place where maybe we'd find an exception by virtue of its contextual usage. Okay, next passage, uh, not passage, but the one we'll turn to, Matthew 19. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 19. <clears throat> And the question is not on this text, but I think this is the one that answers it. Um, And the question is this, um, biblically speaking, is divorce ever okay or rightly justifiable? And uh, I will just tell you, as an elder board, we have worked through this off and on through the years, often, and talked about it. As you probably know, there's quite a diversity of viewpoint out there in the Christian community, uh, quite a difference of, uh, of opinion on the topic, and so we have wrestled through it and studied through it, and, and where we would land is here, uh, these, these two bases, bases, if you will. Um, first of all, is divorce ever okay or right justifiably? Is it justifiable? In Matthew 19, when Jesus was teaching on the permanence of marriage, and you need to understand that in his day, uh, the, the, just the prevailing view was that divorce is acceptable for just about anything. And I'm serious. You can find writings of the rabbis that if your wife burned your toast, you could divorce her or if, you know, just silly things. And so uh, in that context, for Jesus to say what he said about the permanence of marriage was just shocking. And that's what he expounds on uh, in verses 4 and following. And so he narrows it down immensely when in verse 9 he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality or fornication, porneia, this is uh, the same term I mentioned this morning, the broadest term in the New Testament to refer to sexual sin. 
There is a specific Greek word for adultery, moikeia. That's not the one Jesus used here because I don't believe he was limiting it to adultery because uh, you could then, on a technical basis, say, well, what if your spouse became a homosexual? That's not technically adultery. So is that not grounds for divorce and remarriage? So he uses a broader term, which would include things even as bizarre as bestiality, pedophilia. Uh, adultery certainly is included in this term. Um, homosexuality, etc. So he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia, sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So based on this passage, and answer to your question, we believe that if your marriage was broken up because of the unfaithfulness of your spouse, that that would be grounds for divorce and remarriage. And one other could be added to that, and that is in 1 Corinthians 7. We won't take the time to turn to it. You can jot it down. 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says that if you are a believer in a marriage to an unbeliever, so scenario, you have two unbelievers who get married. One of them gets saved, husband or wife. Now you're in a mixed marriage. So if you are in a marriage, you're a believer, and your spouse is not, you should stay in that marriage. In fact, you should try to be the best spouse you could be in that marriage. You may be the one to win that person to Christ. Let him or her see the change that Christ makes in the life. Uh, So don't look to get out of the marriage. Stay in the marriage. Stay committed to it. But then he adds this in his his, uh, realism, knowing that some unbelievers would say, listen, if you're going to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with you. That's not not what I signed up for. It's not what I agreed on. I don't want a Jesus freak. I don't want to be married to a religious uh, zealot. And so if the unbeliever departs, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart, for a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. So there is not the, the bond or the, the being bound to that marriage. So as we've wrestled through it uh, through the years as an elder board, that is uh, uh, where we've landed, that if, if the divorce was broken up because of unfaithfulness, that it's a biblically justifiable divorce and base, uh, then a basis for remarriage, or if a, a believer who's in the marriage and committed to the marriage, but the unbeliever departs, and that believer can't keep the marriage together, then let them depart, a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Okay, next question says this. <clears throat> now let's turn, we'll see, we're in Matthew's Gospel. Turn over to chapter 23. This is not what the question is on, but we'll use this. Uh, And the question says this, Pastor Brian, we are wondering what it looks like to pray for the salvation of others, knowing many have been diligently prayed for and not been born again. What does it look like to pray believing, as Matthew 21, 22 says, while knowing there are the elect who've been predestined for salvation? This is a valid question, a common question, actually, and I, I, I would answer it by saying this. Um, this is where, in my opinion, we uh, allow or we could allow our logic to trump Scripture. Now, logic's fine. Logic's a good thing. God has given us reasoning power. Uh, part of the aspect of personhood is intellect, volition, and emotion. So all three of those are part of the image of God in man. It's what it means to be a person. So intellect, the ability to think and reason is a good thing. But where we have to be careful is when we allow our logic to trump Scripture. And what I find a lot of Christians do in this area of election is that they allow their, the, the, what they think are the logical implications to override Scripture. 
And the reason I had you turn to Matthew 23 is, uh, and let me just preface this, this uh, with the fact that Jesus clearly believed and taught election. I mean, in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in John 10, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. Now, we want to turn that around. You're not my sheep because you don't believe, but that's not what Jesus said. The reason you don't believe, you're not my sheep. So Jesus taught election throughout the gospel. So he, he obviously believed it. He understood it. He obviously understood it way better than we understand it. But he never allowed his belief in election to trump other scriptural truth, namely the heart of God for lost people, the importance of prayer, the genuineness of human volition, etc. For example, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. He didn't say, oh, by the way, but you can't really come because you're maybe, you, maybe you're not elect. So you've got you to find out, first of all, you know, untuck your shirt and look on the back and see if there's an E stamped there for elect before you come. Uh, he didn't do that. He, come unto me. The Bible, closed, the Bible is filled with invitations, genuine invitations. In fact, it closes at the end with the book of Revelation. Whoever thirsts, let him come and drink the water of life freely. Are you thirsty? Come. And in Matthew 23, this is, a, this is such a powerful passage to me. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, do one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And if you compare this with Luke's gospel where Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they rejected him and he said, you, you, you missed your day, therefore you're going to be destroyed. And Jesus was uh, decimated by that, broken, wept. One of the only two occasions when he cried, once at the tomb of Lazarus and once as he wept over Jerusalem. So if you allow, now here's the point, if you allow the doctrine of election to diminish your praying, diminish your passion, diminish your burden for the lost, any of that, you have allowed, you have allowed logic to trump Scripture. Because all of those other things, a prayer and love for the lost, and all of those things are, they could be demonstrated throughout Scripture. So my exhortation to you, the, those who, the, the ones who ask this question, is don't try to fit things together that the Bible doesn't fit together. Don't try to say, well, how... How do, I, you know, how do I pray for someone and I don't know if they're elect? You don't have that kind of statement in Scripture. You don't have that kind of reasoning in Scripture. And so don't, don't, don't get tied up in knots where Scripture would not tie you up in knots. Just go with Bible. Just believe Bible. The Bible teaches election. The Bible teaches genuine human volition. The Bible teaches uh, genuine opportunity to be saved. Whosoever will may come. That's not tongue-in-cheek. That's not wink the eye. Oh, it's not really true. Whosoever will can't come because, you know, if you're not elect, you can't come. The Bible says whosoever will may come. So believe Bible. Don't believe your logic. Whosoever will may come. So love people. Paul said of, of the Jews and he even talked about election in Romans 9 and then he turns right around and says, my brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. In fact, I have such a burden that I could wish myself accursed from Christ for their salvation. 
So in the same context, Paul didn't allow his belief in the doctrine of election to diminish his burden, his passion, his zeal, his praying, etc., and nor should we. All right, next question says, um, what would have prompted John Mark and Peter to write their gospel to the Gentiles? Peter and John Mark, uh, Jewish, who seemed to have a hard time making the transaction to include the Gentiles and not make them Jewish. Uh, And this question comes off your sermon on the overview of Mark, where I talked about the, the gospel of Mark could be called the gospel of Peter. They got connected. Peter was almost certainly John Mark's source. And if you know, John Mark was a very devout Jew, Peter. Uh, And so this question is really uh, worded well, because it is true. If you remember from Acts chapter 10, Peter was very, very reluctant about going to the Gentiles. It took the Lord three visions, three visions of a sheet let down to get him. And and the Lord was using a parallel about these unclean animals. Don't call them unclean to get him to go to a person he assumed was unclean a Gentile. And in fact, what's one of the most bizarre stories in the Bible is in the very next chapter, Acts 11, if you can believe this, Jewish Christians, not just Jews, Jewish Christians called Peter on the carpet for going to Gentiles to give them the gospel. Peter had to defend himself. I mean, that was the mindset of the Jewish, many of the Jewish people. It took a long time for a number of Jewish Christians to accept the fact that God wanted Gentiles to be saved. So this is a valid question, a great question, insightful. What prompted John, Mark, and Peter to write their gospel to the Gentiles? Because Mark's gospel is primarily focused on the Romans. Most scholars would agree with that. And the simple answer I would give is this, the amazing change that God brought about in their hearts. They finally got it, that God wasn't restricting the gospel to the Jewish people. And it was for the Gentile people. And to me, it's so marvelous that that John Mark then, using Peter, that the two of them, however it worked, and we're not told how it worked, but that the two of them would indeed write a gospel to Romans, to Roman people, to Gentile people. It's a, just a marvelous display of the change that took place in Peter's life, uh, the change that Jesus said was going to happen when he chose him and changed his name, said, you're going to become Petros, you're going to become solid as a rock, and Peter never stopped growing. That's the neat thing. He never stopped growing. You can see that as you see the depth and maturity in his letters laid in his life, First and Second Peter, and even evidenced by this, that he would choose or obviously be prompted by the Holy Spirit to write a gospel to the Gentile people. All right, the next question is, uh, you don't have to turn to it because the question kind of gives the verse, 1 Samuel 15, 35, where it says that God regretted making Saul king. And the question is, how is this explained in light of God's sovereignty? Again, it's another one of those questions where we we could tend to, to allow our logic to take away from what God's word says. God did regret making Saul king. He regretted that he had done that. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean, we know this, it does not mean that God did not know this was going to happen. It does not mean that God did not see that this was coming. It's not that when it came that all of a sudden God had, a, uh, had this thought, I never dreamed Saul was going to do this. What have I done? I should have. That, that would be a completely wrong view of God, a wrong view of Scripture. But, What we don't want to do is to minimize the reality that it was a grievous thing to the heart of God to see Saul make such wrong decisions. It was a grievous, it's just like in Genesis when God brought the flood. It says the same, almost the same thing. That God, in fact, the the old King James says that God repented that he made man. 
That's how God repented that he made man, and he decided to bring the flood. That's a strong statement. Maybe, maybe not the best translation because of what it could imply, that, that God somehow did something wrong, but it still brings out the intensity of that Hebrew word. When God looked at the human race and what it had become, it broke his heart. Again, he, he knew it was coming. He saw it coming. But, beloved, don't let that, that kind of view of the sovereignty of God make you emotionless because it doesn't make God emotionless. He, you know, Ephesians 4.30 even tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed. God's Spirit can be grieved. God can be grieved. And He is grieved. He was, he was grieved when Saul made those terrible decisions that he made. So again, just let Scripture speak. Don't feel like that you need to somehow uh, be able to uh, harmonize uh, everything, especially in this area, because you're talking about the person of God and the decree of God and the works of God. And what does Paul say in Romans 11? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who, who's, who can understand God? If you think you have it all figured out how all this works, we're in trouble. We're all in trouble. Or you have a very low view of God because you and I, beloved, can't totally harmonize all, all the works of God and the character of God, the person of God. Just, just leave the tension there. Don't feel like you have to totally rectify it. Just leave it there and just let it exist as it exists. All right, next question says this. uh, When Jesus was here on earth, did he have a soul? And the answer to that question is yes, Jesus was truly and fully human. In John 12, 27, you could uh, jot that verse down. He says, now my soul is exceedingly troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this very hour I came. So there John tells us that Jesus acknowledged his soul was exceedingly troubled, but it would not drive him to say, okay, Father, then I I shouldn't carry through with this. This is why I came for this hour. And he was anticipating the cross then. So in answer to your question, did Jesus have a soul? Yes, he did. Uh, He had a genuine human body, genuine soul, uh, genuine spirit. Not that I'm differentiating those, uh, soul slash spirit, because those terms are sometimes used interchangeably. Uh, But the point is, Jesus was fully and genuinely human. Body, soul, spirit, heart, mind, thoughts, inner man, whatever you want to call it, he was fully human. Uh, Related to that, the next question says, when Satan possesses the Antichrist, will he have a soul? And I think if you're meaning he, the Antichrist, uh, the answer would be yes. In other words, the Antichrist also will be a genuine human being. He will be a man, but he will be satanically empowered But being satanically possessed or empowered doesn't negate his humanity. In fact, it energizes his humanity humanity and empowers him in in a unique way to do things that he wouldn't be able to do in his mere humanity. All right, uh, next question says uh, this. Uh, After listening to this morning's message, and for those who weren't here, we looked at uh, the woman taken in adultery in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, and saw that in the law of God, uh, it stated in a couple places in the Pentateuch that adulterers were to be stoned. And so that's sort of the background of this question. So after listening to this morning's message, how did Jesus not sin uh, and fulfill the law by not stoning the woman? Was she guilty? It's a great question, and it's one I should have answered this morning, but just uh, sort of ran out of time and didn't pursue this course. Uh, To answer your question, yes, the indication of the text is she was guilty. Uh, But 
Remember, she was, the other indication of the text, she was clearly set up. Now, I'm not saying that excuse her, but she was set up. And I, in answer to your question, how, how was Jesus not sinning? I remember I did talk this morning about how many other laws those who set this thing up violated. And so my answer to the question would be this. You cannot violate law to enforce law. In other words, it's very similar in our own system, and this is an exact parallel, but let's say there is a a neighborhood that knows that one of the the people in this neighborhood is a drug dealer, and all of the neighbors don't like it. They're nervous. They they don't like having this person in the neighborhood dealing drugs, etc., but they can't catch the guy. So the neighbors get together, and they decide they're going to plant some drugs in this person's house, call the police, have the police go there, search the house, and then arrest the guy and have him sent to prison. Well, that may take care of the problem, but you can't do that. You can't break the law to enforce the law. Even though everybody knows the person's a drug dealer, uh, you can't set them up in that way just to get them in trouble. So in a similar way, it's not an exact parallel, but because, as I mentioned, several violations of the law of God, that those who set up this whole situation, that all their violations, uh, in a sense, it comes back to my statement, you can't violate law to enforce law. Jesus wasn't the first-hand witness, as one of the passages talks about. She was brought to him. He didn't witness the offense, etc. So uh, they, they set it up. Now, Again, if she, we don't know anything about this lady. We don't know if this was she was regularly adulterer, if this was just something that she, she was set up for on this occasion, or whatever Jesus did say here, go and sin no more. Go and forsake your life of sin. Uh, so he did not excuse, as I tried to emphasize this morning, uh, but he wasn't in the wrong for not stoning her or carrying out the law of Moses because they violated the law, the, that is, they, those who set it up, in an attempt to try to get the law carried out, or actually attempt to get Jesus murdered. So it violated the whole thing, and it's not unlike what happens in our judicial system where someone sometimes stands before a judge, and the person was arrested totally wrongly, everything was handled wrong, and the judge knows, I can't convict this person even if they're guilty. Uh, in a similar type of situation. All right, next question is on Jeremiah, uh, uh, yeah, Jeremiah 15, 19. So let's turn back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 15, 9, Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will bring you back. And this is, this is God speaking to Jeremiah, by the way. Uh, if you return, I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you says the Lord. And the question is, please explain the second part of verse 19, especially the phrase, uh, if you, depending on your translation, take forth the precious or you take out the precious from the vial. What is being described here? Well, first, let's kind of let me set up the, the, the context here. I consulted a couple commentaries this afternoon. Both said the context is the same here. Both had the same take on it that uh, Jeremiah at this stage, if we were reading through the letter, Jeremiah was struggling with self-pity. The Lord was basically reprimanding him for his self-pity and his impatience. And uh, he was, the Lord was exhorting him back to the proper posture before him, the proper uh, place before him. 
And so he gives him this exhortation. If you return, then I'll bring you back. You'll stand before me. In other words, if you'll come back, get your act together, Jeremiah, uh, straighten your attitude out, then you'll be my prophet. That's basically what he's saying, just to, to generally to overview what, what he's saying here. But what is this passage if you take out the precious from the vile, or if, if you uh, take forth the precious, etc.? That is just simply a, a figure of speech that Jeremiah would have immediately recognized uh, describing the same type of process where pure metal is taken from the dross. And so it's a, it's, it was a figure of speech to describe uh, separating things or discernment or, or, or making the right kinds of decision. Uh, so in this context, that's what the Lord is saying. If you'll return to me, I'll bring you back. You'll stand before me. If you'll get, refocus your perspective here to become clear in your thinking, Jeremiah, to be able to sort things out, uh, to, to have discernment, have discretion, etc. If you do that, then, then you'll be my prophet again, etc. That's what he's saying. But he uses this figure of speech to talk about what Jeremiah needed to do uh, and that in turning back to him and sort of getting his act to get back together again. All right, next question is on Proverbs 14. So let's turn back to the left to Proverbs 14. Chapter 14, verse 11, uh, which in the New King James reads, The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. I consulted about three or four translations this afternoon on this. Uh, most, I think, read that way. Someone have a, a King James version? Tell me what that reads. Who has? 1411. Is it, especially the terms house, house, tabernacle, tent, etc., are those terms, 1411? Okay, tabernacle. Mine says tent. I think most ESV I checked, NASB, NIV, most use that. So the question are, what are the implications of house versus tabernacle or tent in this verse? And uh, I wasn't sure if the question was more on why some translate them one way and one the other. So let me, or if it's the parallelism between house and then tabernacle tent. So let me just answer both questions. Uh, first of all, uh, the, if it's just the translation issue you're asking about, uh, this Hebrew word can be translated in any of these ways. House, tabernacle, or tent. Uh, it's, it's a dwelling place. So some people in that day, of course, dwelt in tents. Uh, the Lord dwelt in the tabernacle, that eventually dwelt in the temple, and some people dwelt in a house. So you could use this word to just refer to a dwelling place. So if that's what you're wondering about, why do some translations use house, tabernacle, tent? It's just the translator's preferences trying to feel, uh, trying to feel their way for what would be the best word to represent this Hebrew word. If you're wondering about sort of the, the play on words between the uh, the house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will, be, will flourish. Um, what are the implications? The Hebrew parallelism, and that's, of course, is just throughout the book of Proverbs. The Hebrew parallelism probably indicates that no difference is intended. A lot of times, Proverbs are, especially if they're the same verse, they will say something and just use a synonym just for the sort of the poetic effect. Remember, Proverbs are poetry. They're in poetic... Uh, the poetic genre. And so a lot of times the writer will use a synonym and he'll use a, a Hebrew word that means if there were differences here, and I didn't check the Hebrew terms, but house, tent, 
tabernacle, just ones that could have nuances of difference, but he's not trying to draw some unique or, or a technical distinction. It's just Hebrew parallelism and, uh, in trying to express a similar thought. So basically what the verse is saying, the house of the wicked will be overthrown, ten of the upright will flourish. I did consult a couple commentators uh, this afternoon on it, and both are indicating that, that it's just a way of saying that the you know the 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 long term the the goods the 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 household uh, the the property of the wicked is eventually going to be overthrown, but that of the upright will flourish. And so I, I don't think you need to read any distinctions between house, tent, tabernacle, whether in your translation or the parallelism in the two phrases. All right, Matthew chapter seven for the next question. Over to Matthew seven, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And in my translation, it begins, and I know it doesn't in all of them because I looked at them, but, but in my translation, it begins, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And as I've often said, and the person asking this question has is, is remembered it, whenever you see a therefore, you stop and see what it's there for. There's a connection going on. And so the question is, how does this verse flow out of verse 11 in a therefore fashion. If this verse begins with the word therefore or has it in it, what is the connection? Well, back up and you'll see the connection. Uh, in verse 7, Jesus is talking about prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. That's a, a, a promise that God hears our prayers, responds to our prayers. This is the character of God, that he is good, that he gives to his people. And in fact, he is so good that he won't give the wrong thing. God won't do it. Even if we were to ask for the wrong thing, that's how good God is. He gives what is best, not always, maybe even not always what we ask. Because he says, Or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? In other words, God, is, God always gives what is best. God gives what is good. And uh, in, it isn't even dependent on whether it's deserved or not, whether we're worthy of it or not. And in fact, Jesus then in verse 11 says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So this is a passage uh, uh, stating that the reason we can be confident that God hears our prayers is because of the character of God. God is good. And so, coming off of that, because God is good, and God does what is good to people, and especially His people, whether deserving or not, therefore, basically, you could almost paraphrase verse 12, therefore, imitate the character of God. Be like your Father. Be like your Heavenly Father. Or, to say it this way, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. That is, treat people the way that you would want them to treat you. Treat them in a way that's gracious, that's Consider it, that's thoughtful, that, 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 that's the way God treats us. The fact that he will hear our prayers, for this is the law and the prophets. So the way it fits is basically because of God's character, as described in verses 7 through 11, if you call him your father, then you should be like him in your character. And that is giving people uh, what is good, doing for them what you would want them to do, do to you, not necessarily even what they deserve. God doesn't give us what we deserve, certainly or we would all face his judgment. So that's the connection between the two. All right, Acts chapter 20 is the next one. 
Acts chapter 20. And in verse 7, we do have uh, this very unusual story. Sort of almost seems inserted awkwardly. I think that's why the person is asking the question. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together, and by the way, I had a young lady ask me this morning uh, about the issue of why don't we worship on Saturday Sabbath, etc. And I explained that we worship on Sundays because the early church started worshiping on Sundays to commemorate the resurrection. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. And that's why we gather, not, not that it's commanded, we don't have to. We could meet on Thursdays or Tuesdays or whatever. But, um, and here's another indication that this was, this was already beginning to take place in the book of Acts. So I'm not sure if the young lady is here tonight, but if you are, the, and we had this conversation, here would be one of the passages. On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, and commentators are split over that, whether that means just to have a meal together in fellowship, or if it's more of a technical phrase of breaking of bread as in the Lord's Supper. Uh, but either way, they're coming together. Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in, the, in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. Now, most of you can relate to that. You've had that experience at one time or another. We all have. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And that is, he's not saying, oh, don't worry, he's not dead. But it's, this is, Luke's description is of a, a resurrection or a resuscitation. Uh, don't trouble yourselves, his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So the question is, what is God's purpose in using Eutychus in Acts 27 through 12? In other words, why is Eutychus in this passage in the Bible? Was this passage to show that our lives can be restored? No, no. And, and don't go there. That is uh, at starting going down a path that all of us have a tendency to go down, and, and that is when we don't know what to do with the passage, just allegorize it. You know, just spiritualize it. Make it say something it's not saying. Uh, no, this is not. In fact, I heard one guy. I actually heard of one guy who preached on this passage. And this young man, by the way, Eutychus is talking about him being a young man. The Greek word here uh, describes someone who was uh, maybe just an early teenager, maybe not quite even a teenager. So, you know, pic picture someone 12, 13, 14 years old, something like that. And I actually heard of one guy who preached on this passage, and he said, here's the point of it. He said, preaching kills teenagers, and hugging gives them life. So don't preach to teenagers, but hug them. And that was actually what he was saying. That was, well, that is a major case of allegorizing or spiritualizing Scripture. It's not at all what the passage is saying. So it's a valid question you ask. Why does Dr. Luke insert this into this text? And there he goes on. And I think the answer is this. I think this was Dr. Luke's way. Now remember, Luke and Paul were partners in, in missionary work. And Dr. Luke knew the, th the issues that Paul faced. And especially Paul faced these issues at Corinth, where the people, or at least some of the people in the church at Corinth, questioned his apostleship. In fact, some not, just, not only questioned, they denied it. 
said, you're not an apostle. You, you, you aren't one of the apostles. And so 2 Corinthians, for example, almost the entire book is written as a defense by Paul of his apostleship. He hated doing that, by the way. If you read 2 Corinthians, you hear him say how much he hated. He just, it felt so awkward, so wrong for him to have to defend his apostleship. But he did. They basically backed him into a corner and he defended his apostleship. And that same type of defense seems at least implied other places. For example, Paul often opens his letters by saying something like this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And he said that often, and I can't help but believe that the reason he repeated that so often is because this is what was the accusation against him. So, Paul, you're your self-appointed apostle. You weren't, a, you, weren't a, you weren't with Peter and James and John's, those that walked with the Lord and, and saw the Lord. That's why in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? I saw him. Now, granted, 1 Corinthians 9, I'm an apostle, sort of born out of due time. I was sort of born at the wrong time, but I'm an apostle. That was something that Paul faced throughout his ministry. And so I believe, in answer to your question, why is this in the Bible, I believe that this was Luke's way of authenticating Paul's apostleship. Because Paul did, on this occasion, what apostles did, that is, raised from the dead. You remember 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul, in defending his apostleship, said, in fact, turn over to it, turn to the right, past Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and look at Paul's statement here in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, where, in, in again, in this context of him having to defend his apostleship, he says in verse 12 of chapter 12, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Basically what Paul is saying is there, you really have no basis to question my apostleship because I did the signs of an apostle. I did the miracles, the wonders, the mighty deeds, and this was one of them. He raised Eutychus from the dead. So I personally believe that's why Luke inserted it in this, in this place in, in the book of Acts because it was uh, just a way for Luke to authenticate Paul's apostleship and help Paul with an issue that he knew Paul faced in his ministry, people questioning his apostleship. Okay, next question says this. Uh, it's um, John 7. Go back to John chapter 7. Back to the left, John 7. And in verse 27, we read this. Well, back up verse 26. Uh, uh, but look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? This is where there's this consternation among some of the Jewish leaders. What are we going to do with Jesus? Uh, verse 27, however, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And the question is this. I am curious about the statement in John 12, 27. Did the Jews know where Messiah would come from? Well, they did know where he would come from as far as birth. That was clearly stated, Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you're not one of the least of the... Though you are least, you're... I should not paraphrase it. I should just uh, read it to you. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, are not the least among the tribes of Judah, for out of you will come one who will rule my people Israel. 
So it was a prophecy stating the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's why when the wise men came from the east and they're trying to figure out where to go, they come and ask the scribes, where is the Christ to be born? They knew the answer. They quoted Micah 5.2, go down to Bethlehem. So they knew his origin. But what we do know is that a tradition had arisen within Judaism that when the Messiah came, so I don't think they're talking about so much his birth, that no one would know where the Messiah was, where the Messiah lived, and all of a sudden he would just show up sort of miraculously and deliver the people of Israel. That was the common belief among the people. So this statement here in verse 27 is reflecting the common myth or traditional view, that no one would know. So they, going off their tradition, said, well, basically, Jesus, this, he can't be the Christ. We know where this man is from. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. They knew that much. So he can't be the Christ. Well, their problem was that they allowed, as, as is the case in Judaism still to this day, they allowed their tradition to overrule Scripture. So, no, it wasn't true that no one would know where the Christ was from. But that's what they believed or assumed. All right, next question says this. In light of the fact that, this is coming off of last Sunday morning's message, in light of the fact that there must be an interpreter when tongues are spoken, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 27-28, was there an interpreter when tongues were first spoken in Acts 2? And the answer is no, there was no interpreter because the languages spoken were represented by the... cosmopolitan crowd that was gathered and there was no need for interpretation. That's exactly what the text says, that all these people said, how is it that we hear each of these men who are Galileans in our own language? So there was no need for an interpreter because everybody or every language that was spoken, there were people there who spoke, that was their native tongue and they knew the language. And that is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14, is when you take that gift outside of that context and you bring it into the church and someone's speaking a language and there are no other people there who speak that language or know that language, then you need to be quiet unless there's an interpreter. But in answer to your question, no, there, there was no interpretation going on in Acts 2 because you don't need interpretation when when the language that's being spoken is the language that people know and understand. In fact, their own native language. All right, next question says this. uh, It is sometimes humorous how events unfold in the lives of individuals. And that's true. We would all acknowledge that. Some of the strange twists and turns of life. And so in light of that, does God have a sense of humor? You know, that's a, that's a hard answer, a question for me to answer because um, I'm not sure that I'm comfortable saying God has a sense of humor for one reason because of everybody's definition of what that means or what that would look like uh, would probably be different. But I will say this, and, and the reason why this is sort of fresh on my mind is that, Lord willing, next Sunday night in our survey series um, that we've been doing on surveying various books of the Bible, uh, my plan is, Lord willing, to do the book of Esther. And if you are familiar with the book of Esther, then you know, however you read it, it is certainly, to say the least, a very unusual, strange turn of events. And I won't, uh, you know, spill the beans here and give the message now, but just how the, the, the you know, the, the evil antagonist, you know, ends up being hanged on his own gallows and all of the twists and turns. So, you know, when you read that, you think, it's, it's clearly providential what's going on. It, didn't, it wasn't just happenstance. God was orchestrating that. So I guess I would just say this. If you would call that a sense of humor, 
that God twists and turns things and, and overturns the plans of men and, and etc., then if that's what you would consider a sense of humor, then I would say the answer to the question is yes. Um, but if that's not what you would call a sense of humor or your definition would be different, then you can, you can uh, describe that however you want. Um, so uh, I guess that's how I'd answer the question. I'd kind of uh, fudge on it and not land because I'm not sure what each person would mean. All right, final question. It's actually two questions, uh, and it is this. They, they kind of bleed one into another. Uh, is it justifiable to arm oneself to provide protection for your family and to use lethal force against those who uh, intended, I think, I can't uh, intended to do harm? Follow-up, should a Christian join the military when they will probably be asked to kill another person uh, or perform, I think, I can't, I can't quite read it, but same idea, I mean, perform that type of act, I think it said. And uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to uh, evade this question, but I am going to say this. I'm not going to answer the question uh, because it is, listen, Christians have been debating this for 2,000 years. And there are so many issues here that uh, even if I put this as the first question and took all 45 minutes, you really couldn't do justice. Now, it, it, it's uh, far more complicated. Some Christians will, will quote Romans 13 for that. It set, that settles it to them. God has given the government the right to take life. So if you're a soldier, you're, you're working for the government, you have the right to take life. And for them, that settles it. Others quote the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, you turn the other cheek, you never do anything wrong. And for them, that settles it. And others say, no, we've got two different things going on there. You, you need to make sure that you understand what each situation is describing, etc. So uh, I'm not going to, I have a view on it, uh, but I'm not going to pretend to try to answer it. Because as I said, Christians have debated this one. And really, in a sense, you don't have to answer it from this standpoint. It really does come down to your conscience anyway. Because, let's say, just for the sake of discussion... Let's say it's okay to arm yourself and, uh, for protection so that if a burglar breaks in or a murderer or a rapist and you shoot them, you're within the confines of the law, you're not guilty. Uh, let's say it is okay, just for the sake of discussion. Let's say you could, you could make a biblical case for that. You want to hear something? If in your conscience you still would feel guilty, you've sinned. And this is what Paul teaches in both Romans and in Corinthians that with the issue of the meat offered idols, that even if something's not wrong, if it violates your conscience, it's wrong. You, you shouldn't do it. You should never violate your conscience. So and that is why, interestingly, a lot of Christians and even our government in some ways and other governments have come up with this idea of a matter of conscience for people on this issue. Because in large measure it is. Uh, I'm not saying Scripture doesn't say anything about these things. It certainly does. But when it's all said and done... Whatever Scripture says, if you can't convince your conscience of what Scripture says, then you need to go with your conscience until you educate your conscience because you don't ever want to get in the habit of violating your conscience. Because if you violate it on something that's really not wrong, then it's going to be easy for you to violate it on something when it's trying to warn you about wrong. And so that's why Paul says in both Romans and, and Corinthians, don't violate your conscience. So it's an issue you can study out. And, and like I said, there's... There's just a plethora of material on it. Christians have debated it and questioned it and gone round and around. Uh, so I would encourage you to do that. Try to educate your conscience. But when it's all said and done, you need to follow your conscience on it 
uh, because don't get in the habit of violating your conscience. Okay, great questions. Lord willing, we'll do this again next month. Let's stand as we close. Father, thank you for our time together and our time probing these uh, issues, these topics, these questions. Lord, we never want to sort of get in the habit of just uh, questions for the sake of curiosity, Uh, but we do want to understand your word, and we certainly want to understand how your word relates to life and to our situation here in 21st century, because it's, it's definitely different than 1st century or 5th century B.C. or whatever the case may be. And, and so it's uh, always a task to take the truth of your word, rightly divide it, take those principles, what principles endure, how does it apply, what are the valid applications. It's a process in which we should all engage and engage our minds, our thoughts, our efforts, and pray that we would always do that. Again, not for the sake of idle curiosity, but because of a sincere and genuine desire to want to know how to live our lives in the context in which you've placed us. So grant us the grace to do that well for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.